So we got a little bit of a football game this evening. Yeah, whatever, the Denver Broncos aren't playing in it, so I don't really care. A few of you have asked me though, okay, the Broncos are not in it, so who's your team? What hat are you wearing tonight? And I've been thinking about it a little bit, and finally, uh, I, I was kind of going back and forth and thought, all right, you know, and I finally have decided. So I'm gonna wear the hat of, uh, of the team that has, has played the most fair over the years. I'm gonna also root for the team that really is America's team, a lot of people's minds, from one of the great cities, great historic cities in our country, uh, the, the world champions. And so I'm gonna be wearing the hat of the Chicago Cubs. And it just makes it easier, makes it easier. I'm still basking in the world championship from a couple of years ago. Now, I don't know you historians if you remember what happened when the Cubs won uh, the baseball world championship a couple of years ago, but it was game seven in Cleveland at Progressive Field, the Indians, the Cubs, uh, Cubs fans don't, won't, will never forget this. And sad to say a lot of the Indians fans won't either, but uh, the Cubs had come back in the series. It was the seventh inning. They were up six to three, and then one double and a two-run homer later, it's tied, and the momentum has shifted. The air is going out of every Cubs living room and TV room in the country because we're thinking, it's going to happen again. We're, we're going to get our hearts ripped out again. And then it was revealed that God really is a Cubs fan because it, it rained and brought a, a, a rain delay to the game to halt this awful demise of momentum that the Cubs were experiencing. So they go into the locker room before going into extra innings. And trivia question, it's one of the great speeches in world championship, whether it's football, basketball, baseball, one of the great locker room speeches in the history of, of professional sports. Who gave it? Jason Hayward. Good grief, who was that? You, I'd give you this hat, but it has my name on it. So. Jason Hayward, right fielder. I think it was kind of a players only thing. He got him together and the theme of his speech was, remember who you are. You know, it's, you, you were, you, the, and he started going through all the statistics. Their year, they had the best regular season in all of baseball, nobody had come close. And basically it was not just saying, remember who you are, uh, kind of in the Mufasa Simba way which is a great speech, by the way. And, uh, but remember who we are. He was speaking to himself as well. They came out and in the 10th inning did the job and, and, and won it all. It's similar to a speech that Paul, I know this is what you were thinking, that Paul was giving to the Ephesians in the world championships many years ago. Not really, but in Ephesians chapter two, Ephesians, Paul's letter to the Ephesians written really two parts. The first three chapters are what you could call as the indicative, what, what is indicative of every follower of Jesus. The last three chapters are kind of the imperative, the so what. So this is what's true. These are the implications. Here's what he says. This is one of the capstone moments in Ephesians 2. He's, he says, I want you to remember who you are. Let's remember who we are. And what's the characteristic that he, he, he draws out? He says, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive. 
with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it's by grace that you've been saved. He said, guys, remember who we are. We live in the valley of the shadow of death, but we have been made alive. And it's something to be reminded of over and over. Robert Fulgham wrote a book called All I Ever Really, did, ever really Needed to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. <laughs> He's, I think, a kindergarten teacher. He talks about in his book, uh, one time he had 80 kindergartners in this assembly room and they were doing a, a crowd breaker called uh, uh, Wizards, Dwarves, and Giants. It's kind of like rock, paper, scissors. It's a really big version of rock. Instead of you using your hand, all the, all the kids pick what they're going to be. And bedlam happens. They're all having a blast. He's transfixed all that. And all of a sudden, he feels a little tug on his, his pants sleeve. He looks down, and there's one of his little kindergarten girls. She looks up at him and says, uh, Mr. Virgo, where do all the mermaids go? I know they're wizards and they're dwarves and they're giants out there, but how about the mermaids? Where do they go? What do they do? You and I live in a culture where people are, are, are battling the death sentence that we're born with. How can I extract purpose? How can I ex- maybe kill the pain? How can I be somebody? And people, some will say, I want to be part of the rich people. Others will say, I want to be part of the powerful people. Other people say they want to be part of the popular people. And along come followers of Jesus who say, you know what? Where do all the alive people go? And we gather and we scatter. And it's the epicenter of the gospel. You talk about remember who you are, it's also remembering who Jesus is. In John 11, by Lazarus' tomb, the past couple of weeks, we've looked at this text. He says in verse 25 of John 11, he says, Jesus said to her, Lazarus' buddy has died, Martha, her brother, and him are talking. And he said to her, I am, remember who I am. I am the resurrection and the life. So Martha, the one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you, do you believe this? He says, the grave is very real in a fallen world, but the gospel applies to the other side of the grave. That first sentence, the one who believes in me will live even though they die. Yes, most people get that, but the majority of folks that are doing the church thing, we apply the gospel only to future tense, not to present tense. He said, but there's also this side of the grave, it applies, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Living and dying is not just heart beating, lung breathing. Living has to do with me being restored to the original purpose and trajectory for which I'm made. Jesus had an agenda. It was not to start a religion, not to start a holiday, not to give us something to do on Sundays, but he, it was to make us alive. It was to change our status, our identity, but our reality. John 10, 10, the thief, the enemy wants to destroy all that God has made. He comes to, to steal, to kill, and to destroy. He says, but let me tell you why I've come. I've come to reverse the curse. I've come that you might have life and have it to the full. Have it according to what you were originally intended for. Not happy clappy, not self-improvement, not positive mental attitude, but a new frame of existence in which the, the, the heart, heart beating and lung breathing the same way it was five minutes before I came to Christ, my entire existence has changed. 
The life of God has been breathed into me. As Ezekiel says, he's given me even a new heart to replace that heart of stone with a heart of flesh. The disciples got this, John 20, 31. John says, this is why I've written my gospel. So in two weeks, we're going to start going through John's gospel. We'll start with verse 1, chapter 1. Here's the end of the gospel. He says, these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. We refer to that as orthodoxy. And most churches say, yep, that's what it's all about. You've got to believe in Jesus, Messiah, the, the Son of God. Absolutely. But there is a consequence of that. That's the, the, the gospel is fulfilled not just in an or, a statement of orthodoxy, but in an experience of vibrancy. He says that by believing, he says, I've also written these things that by believing, you may have life in his name. And John, breathe the life of Jesus. Next week, Pastor Vernon's going to speak to us about, to teach from, from Revelation. John the Revelator is the old man. And then the next week, I'll start with John writing his gospel. But at the core, he's saying, as Irenaeus, two generations from him, John discipled Polycarp, Polycarp discipled Irenaeus, and Irenaeus said, the glory of God is man fully alive. So what's vibrancy look like? It's at the core of our vision. For this season, which is the, the gift that we have of it, is following along with the disciples and they are the early church and our, our vision of engaging people to be fully alive in Jesus, what's it look like? So we're taking three weeks to describe that. Three weeks really to set up a filter from which you and I can look at John's gospel. So we're coming up with 10 characteristics of being fully alive. There are a lot more than that. Mentioning 10, using the first 10 letters of the alphabet, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J. They're not in any particular order other than the order of the letters of the alphabet. So, We've gone over six, we're gonna to go to four today. I'll, re- I'll review the first six, this is a quiz. We've had the electrical wiring accomplished and so if you get the wrong answer, there'll be just a slight electrical shock in your seat. But don't worry, it, 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 just like a bee sting. Just kidding, no electrical shocks. But what does it look like? Practically speaking, when I get up in the morning and say, I wanna be fully alive to the glory of God, when my head hits the pillow and I say, today, was I fully alive to the glory of God? What are the characteristics that should, should be there? A stands for awe. Living each day to a cadence of worship, embracing the mystery, the majesty, the wonder of who God is and what he does and noticing him, paying attention to the beauty and the authorship of God and living a life of worship, all of life. Not just Sunday morning singing, but in everything that I do. When I wake up in the morning, I want to be fully alive to the glory of God. When I put my head on the pillow at night, it's wanting to say, have I been fully alive to the glory of God? It will involve this. B stands for Okay, it, all, I realize all was one syllable and this is three and that makes it tougher, but let's try it again. What? Brokenness. Brokenness. Fully alive is not just let's talk about the positive stuff. Fully alive is engaging with the ebbs and flows of my journey, both the redemption and the fall, both the, 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 the reality of what has happened in the curse and the hope of what is happening in the restoration of all things. And it's me stewarding the pain, not just running from it and understanding God has a restorative agenda. In this world, you will have trouble, Jesus said, but take heart. I've overcome the world. Doesn't mean you turn your back on brokenness. It means you stare it in the face with the hope of the gospel. 
To be fully alive is also to wake up every morning understanding that today I want to pursue Okay. Man, I wish we'd have installed those electrical uh, things because let's, let's try it again. What does D stand for? Depth. By the way, all of these phrases are in your worship guides and uh, the descriptions. We've got a, I shouldn't have told you that quite yet, but the, uh, we also have a, a URL on our website that will uh, let you know about at the end of the service. Being fully alive is to be deep, not superficial is to look not just at what's happening, but why it's happening, and let that, that come out of delving into the wisdom of the Word of God. Fully alive people are deep people because they devour Scripture. Psalm 1, I've, I'm pursuing and meditating on your Word and letting it be like roots going deep down by the stream. Fully alive people also are what? Engaged. What's he stand for over here? Need a little bit more energy from this side of the room. Ready? Here we go. E, engagement. Fully alive is not just about me. It's about engaging with you. It's not just about us. It's about engaging with them in terms of evangelism and outreach and service and compassion and justice. It's understanding that the gospel is to be given away is to be an agent of blessing, to be fully alive, also involves this. What's H stand for? Well, that's good. Living with heart. Tonight, the team that's gonna, that wins is going to be the team that plays with the most heart. Heart is not emotion only. It's all of me. It's the center of who I am. When I'm, I'm playing with heart, they'll have the best game plan, so there'll be an intellectual aspect to it. They will have the best skill set demonstrated. That's the action part. They'll have the best emotional in, in, engagement. They'll play with passion. To live with passion is to think deeply, feel authentically, and act intentionally to the glory of God. Understanding the broken things in my life, the beautiful things in my life. The epicenter is the heart. That's why it's with my heart that I believe. It's with my heart. In my heart, I'm to set apart Christ as Lord every day. If I'm going to be fully alive, means every day I will be intimate with God. Jesus, his most clear definition of eternal life is John 17, 3, saying, this is eternal life that they may know you and the one whom you've sent. And so this, this filters through all of them. I'm relating with Jesus on a daily basis, not just in my quiet time. And notice these words, we're not, I'm not using Bible reading and prayer and worship, a lot of the things that are almost cliches that, have, uh, that are all important as long as they're not just cliches, but it, those are givens, of course. But to what end? To live with a sense of, oh, what's D stand for? And making sure I'm going out, what's E stand for? Engaging people. How about I? H? And over the last month and a half, I've been doing this on a daily basis. The beginning of the day, end of the day, and during the day. Even during the days when I was grappling with my mother's homegoing, my mother's death that a lot of you know about and we've been processing the past couple of weeks. So let's deal with the last four. 
And to do that, I want to set the stage about with a, a graphic that you've seen before, you'll see it again. But a lot of people think the gospel is all about, well, there's a reality of fall and sin, and so Jesus came to redeem it and forgive us and head us to heaven. Yes, all true. But the gospel plot is bigger than that. It begins not with the fall, it begins with creation. And the creation, God said, it is good And we blew it by our rebellion, saying, God, we can be normal men and women without you. I can be fulfilled without you. That's sin. It's rebellion. God didn't say, hmm, I guess my original plan wasn't good enough. I got to come up with something better. No. Creation was good. So in the fall, keeping us from that dance of the creation, being fully saturated with the glory of God, God said, I'm going to redeem. He sent his son to pay the penalty for that rebellion. But the end result of that redemption is a restoration, a restoration back to the original plan. God said, I better come up with something different. What God came up with initially was great. We're going back to it, the new heaven, the new earth. Jesus referred to it in Matthew as the restoration of all things. You talk about a plot. The gospel's not about a bunch of individual propositions and belief statements and orthodoxy. It's about a plot of vibrancy on a daily basis. Now, with that as backdrop, I want you to start picturing who you are as somebody who's a follower of Jesus, or if you're not yet, what we're talking about here. We're not talking about a, a new label, new box to check on the census that says Christian. It's about a new identity, remembering who you are if you are a follower of Jesus, if you're not discovering who who you can be. And it's by grace, it's not by works. It's a gift that he gives. Now James chapter 1, James says something astounding. Verse 18, that God chose to give us birth. So when you come to Christ, it's a new birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. There was creation, a fall from the ideal, a redemption, the redemption to accomplish a restoration. So when you and I trust Christ, we're becoming a first fruits of that recreation of what he's made. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, He is now an impressively religious person. No. If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. He's a new creation. She's a new creation. The old's gone. The new's here. And so the way that we do our journeys, the way we do our ministry, the way we do our impact is based on this new creation. In Galatians chapter 6, Paul talks about how to impress people, and it's not superficially impressed. He's talking about doing ministry. Uh, what's it look like? And they were really struggling. A lot of people think that well, well, the way a church should impact people is through giving people religious things to do. Back then, circumcision was one of the rituals. The Jews said, everybody else, you want to join the church, you've got to go through this religious ritual. Paul, Paul says in, in Galatians chapter 6, he, verse 12, he says, those who want to impress people by means of the flesh are 
They're trying to compel you to be circumcised. And again, remember, impress is not superficial. He's talking about genuine impact. Do we want to impact? He says, let me tell you what it matters. But down to verse 15, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is a new creation. What counts is you remembering who you are. What counts is the significance of a group of people like this that gather together, whether it's two or three gathered in his name or thousands gathered in his name, is that there are tons of people out there saying, the key is we're the rich people. Others are saying the key is we're the popular people. Others are saying we're the powerful people. This group of people gets together and say, we are the alive people. And it's not by anything that we've done. It's by what Jesus has done for us in grace. And we want to be fully alive to the glory of God, living in awe, not being derailed by brokenness, but being refined by it, being deep people, being engaged people, being people that live with heart and are walking intimately with him. But there are four more. And here's the first one, being creative people. To be fully alive is to be creative. Keep that image of the progression. Go back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, God's introduction of himself. In the beginning, it's the first verb, and it's the first indication of his identity to us. In the beginning, God did what? He created. He's creative. Now, in, in creation, he says something astounding. Verse 26, Genesis 1, then God said, let us, meaning his wholeness within the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, in which perfect fellowship was experienced. Let us make mankind in our image. Uh, at the, the funeral for my mom, um, we had a, a visitation the, the evening before. My mom and dad were well-known and leaders. My dad died about 20 years ago. But tons of people came through. And over two and a half hours as I'm in line, in this receiving line, just catching up with people, I had at least three people. And I, I think it might have been more than that. Look at me and say, you're the spitting image of your dad. And what did they mean by that? That I, that I talked like him, perhaps. That I looked like him, perhaps. That I laughed like him, perhaps. But I resembled him. I can tell you're George Hurd's son. Now back to the text. God said, let us make mankind in our image to resemble us in our likeness so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So we are called to image him. Every human being is a mago day in the image of God. Whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, we're all image bearers. We're flawed, we're fallen, but there's still some recognition that can happen there. In this recreation of all things, the goal of the gospel is not a new religion, but is making us alive. It's 
to bring life back to the cosmos. The goal of the gospel is for the life of the world. It's for the recreation of all things. Principle in that are human beings, image bearers that are flawed, that are broken, that are sinful. And when we come to Christ, the penalty for our sin is taken care of, but the restoration begins. And so as I'm growing in my walk with Christ, oh yeah, you can say you're getting to know the Bible more and you're praying more and you're going to church more, sure. But bottom line, it better be because you're becoming more and more like your father. You're resembling Jesus more and more. That's the agenda of the gospel. Romans 8, 29, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image, the icon of his son. Do I look more like Jesus today than I did six months ago? Do you? And if not, I don't care how many Bible studies I've done or sermons I've given or soup kitchens I've served in. that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. We're referred to in Hebrews 12 as the firstborn of the new creation, the church of the firstborn. What's significant about this group is we're following in the path of the firstborn of this new creation. Colossians 3, 9 and 10, since you've taken off your old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge, in the image, the icon of its creator. So I'm, I'm continually going through this journey of shedding that stuff that's all about me, 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 and, and, and beginning to reflect Jesus more and more. 2 Corinthians 3, 18, and we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness. Same Greek word, just translate a different English word, icon, with every ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So it's ever-increasing. It's moving along. So a little bit more this day. Yeah, and you know what? To be honest, I'm three steps forward, two steps back usually in this whole deal. But there's, there's slow progress. Now, go back to Ephesians 2, to Paul's remember who you are speech. You guys remember that? That was 15 minutes ago. Do you remember that? Okay. Let's read it again. Now having absorbed what we've talked about in terms of this grand plot, I'm going to just kind of go through this text just a little bit, verse 1 and 2, 4 and 5, and then 8, 9, and 10. As for you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. Verse 4, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it's by grace that you've been saved. Key, key, key here. We're first talking about the uniqueness of who we are as alive men and women. It is not due to our cleverness. It's due to the grace of God. He's the one who makes us alive. But here we go. For it's by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. Man, I wish a lot of religious people would hear that. And here's what I want you to get. All of this is for you to read this, this sentence. Read this sentence, yes, as a follower of Jesus, but as an accountant, as a consultant, as a teacher, as a golfer, as a hiker, as a painter. 
Read it through your lenses of vocation and avocation. For we are all God's handiwork. The word handiwork there is the Greek word poema, poem, work of art. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. And good works is not just religious works. It's all things. When we are imaging Him, Madeline Lingle wrote this, unless we're creators, we're not fully alive. What do I mean by creators? Not only artists whose acts of creation are the obvious, ones of working with paint or clay or words, creativity is a way of living life, no matter what our vocation or how we earn our living. Today's waiting. You know, yeah, there's a football game, but you know what? There's something far more significant. There's a canvas that's ready to be painted on with your words, your actions, your thoughts, your dreams, your gestures. To image your Father, to image your Savior. Two people that impacted me deeply in this are a couple named Francis and Edith Schaefer. Both have since gone home many years ago, but leaders, thought leaders in evangelicalism back in the latter part of last century. France, they, they had a, a place in Waymo, Switzerland called Labrie, the shelter, and uh, you'd go there to study. I want to read from both of them. I don't usually read this many quotes, but I just want you to hear from Edith and then from Francis. Edith wrote this. She said, it's true that all people are created in the image of God, but Christians are supposed to be conscious of that fact. And being conscious of it should recognize the importance of living artistically, aesthetically, and creatively as creative creatures of the Creator. If we've been created in the image of an artist, then we should look for expressions of artistry and be sensitive to beauty, responsive to what has been created for our appreciation. And now here's what Francis says. No work of art is more important than the Christian's own life. And every Christian is called upon to be an artist in this sense. He may have no gift of writing, no gift of composing or singing, but each man, each woman has the gift of creativity in terms of the way he or she lives his life. In this sense, the Christian's life is to be an artwork. The Christian's life is to be a thing of truth and also a thing of beauty in the midst of a lost and despairing world. We're not talking about any one particular vocation. Coaches, you can be creative. Contractors, carpenters, consultants, chemists, cooks, chiropractors. Corporate execs, the list goes on and on. What today will you create when I wake up and say, will I be fully alive to the glory of God as his image bearer? How am I going to image him today? Through it, Maybe it's a word of kindness with the cashier. Maybe it's solving a major problem in terms of the medical field and, and, and healing a disease. Maybe it's somewhere in between those two. But every day seeing it as a blank canvas to engage with in obedience and submission to His Holy Spirit's creative leadership to say, what's going to happen in kingdom initiatives? What's going to happen in my vocation? What's going to happen in my relationships? The little boy did a painting, you know, and his dad saw it right after he was done. The dad said, what is that? And he says, I don't know. I've never seen it before. 
and to wake up each day and say, Holy Spirit, what are you going to do to enable me to image the Father? To bring about the reality that I am His image bearer. Fully alive men and women are creative to His glory. And are bringing about new kingdom initiatives, new mercy initiatives, new technology initiatives to His glory. Being creative. We've got a blank canvas called Northland in 2019. <laughs> What's it going to look like? Don't know. Never been there before. But we're going to submit before our head and say, we want to image you. And we can image you. Yes, you can image him and you can image him, but together you can image him more. And two or three image him more. A few thousand, we image him more. What's D stand for? Kind of tricked you there, didn't I? H? F. You guys watch ESPN on May 31st of 2018? That night, you would have seen the highlights of the Scripps National Spelling Bee. Yes, on ESPN. 11 million kids pared down to 500 that gathered for the national title, and it was narrowed down to two. And these two kids were both from Texas. This young girl, this was the word that she was given. Take a look at it. And so, Bewusstseinschlager. Shocker, she missed it. And so the other little boy that was left, he had a word that he had to get in order to, and if he had missed it, then he comes back to the two of them going with another one. But uh, his name was Karthik Namani, and he was given this word, Haxiotis, and he got it right. So he's now on his own to lose it or win it the word that is given to him to win the National Spelling Bee for 2018, koinonia. K-O-I-N-O-N-I-A, koinonia. And he won it. You know, that was the crowd. Um, are you kidding me? I saw that and I thought, wow. You know, so koinonia is a word that appears many times, almost 20 times in the New Testament. It's a Greek word that means fellowship, communion, participation. Now, we've talked about this as a, as, as a staff team. I didn't, I, don't, I didn't want to use this word. I wanted to use the word community, but C was already taken. And actually, fellowship is a more biblical word than community, but it's, they, they mean the same thing. So we just talked about, hey, let's reclaim it. The reason is because it's become cliche to so many people. If, you know, let's meet in the fellowship hall, food and fellowship. <sighs> Any of you invite me over to your house for some food and fellowship? Mm. 
Um, the right hand of fellowship, which I grieve because that's a biblical phrase. So let's reclaim it, guys. It means to participate together, to do life together, to be in communion with one another. In fact, communion that we celebrate is not just communion with Him, it's communion with one another. The first time fellowship is used in the New Testament is in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, this is the early church, to fellowship to koinonia, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and have, had everything in common. There was this aspect of journeying together because we are all, we're firstborn. We're, we're the church of the firstborn. Jesus being the firstborn from among the dead in his resurrection to say, follow me and enter in to the trajectory of the new creation. In Hebrews chapter 12, I mentioned it earlier. No other service has gotten this. So you get Hebrews 12. You get a lot more, but I'll get you out in time for the Super Bowl. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and you have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn born whose names are written in heaven. There's something powerful about journeying together. First John chapter 3 verse 14, he says, you want to see a group of people, the difference of whether they're alive or whether they're dead? First John chapter 3 verse 14, we know that we've passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. That's agape love. That's a, a Christ-birthed love. I with uh, my mom, I've reflected on her journey over the years and our relationship. In fact, I mentioned this at her funeral. I was a young man just out of college, I think, and she and I were walking down a city street, and uh, she had her arm in, in mine. You know, I had my, my arm kind of like this, and she had her, her hand in the crook of my elbow, and we're walking down the sidewalk. And I don't know why it was. Maybe it was because of the crowds or whatever, and we couldn't move to one side or the other. But we come up to a, it was either a sign or a, a, light, a light pole. So we had to part in order to keep walking. So she let go, and she went on, on one side of the light pole. I went on the other. We got to the other side. And then she put her hand back in the crook of my arm. And when she did it, now this is mom, is five foot two, giant, godly woman. She's also a Southern belle, beautiful Southern accent. When she put her hand back in the crook of my elbow, she said, bread and butter. I said, well, what did you say? And she said, bread and butter. You and I are like bread and butter. But she said it with that buttery southern accent. It's just beautiful. And I said, where did that come from? She said, I, I remember that phrase from when I was a little girl with a friend of mine. We just figured out we were so close, we were like bread and butter. They belong together. Your bread, your butter. Let's do this thing together. We fellowship, we participate together. It's not in a sentimental love only, it's in the agape, that giving, that sacrificial love in which we reflect the life of Jesus. I just looked at the clock. Man, I am there wondering what, uh, we got to finish, we got to land this plane. Um, <laughs> I was done by now in the other services. So yeah, it's, it's all extra, we just threw it in. G? Generosity. Generosity. 
Fully alive people are generous. We're not hoarders. Kevin Harney writes about watching, volunteering in the nursery and seeing this little five-year-old boy. He had two, two, a, a, red, a rubber ball in either hand and then three other Nerf balls that he was sitting on the floor and he was guarding the Nerf balls. He just didn't want anybody else to play with the, with the balls. And so and whenever any kid would come, come up, he would, he would you know, move his... And finally, he began growling He's, as Kevin observed this. Oh, you can't have any of these balls. And, uh, he said, I could have interrupted it, but I, I just wanted to observe. So the kids started gathering around like wolves, you know, wanting to grab one of these balls. And it was this tussle, the whole Sunday school class. And when it was done, Kevin made the observation, you know, he, he never was happy. You don't get happy hoarding. We're meant to not keep our lives for ourselves, our lives belong to Him. Jesus says in Matthew 16, then Jesus said to His disciples, whoever wants to be My disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow Me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever's going to hoard their life for themselves and their richness or their power or their popularity, they're going to lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Which is why Jim Elliott, a hero of mine, never knew him. He was, he was martyred in 1956, went to Wheaton College. He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Fully alive people are generous. First of all, to God, we say, you know what? I'm not going to hoard my life. I'm going to lose my life. And when I lose my life and I die to self, he enlivens me for his glory. And I become what he originally intended. Perfectly, no. Still a fallen body, still a fallen world. But I'm on track. So I've been generous to him. And with what he gives me, I'm generous to others with my time, with my ability, with my finances. We spent a whole month on this back in November. And I'll tell you what, one of some of the times when I get pretty discouraged is we're rebirthing and re- rejuvenating a lot of our ministry here. I keep in my office a ton of yellow sticky notes that you wrote at the end of that generosity series. Remember the last weekend we had crosses up here and you wrote, how am I going to be generous this week? And you wrote it out and stuck it on the cross. Please say you remember. That was just like two months ago. That, is, that would be so discouraging that you don't remember doing that. I told you not to put your name on it, but we have done handwriting analysis. <laughs> just kidding. So in moments when I think, this is a steep mountain, and I think of you, can we do this? I get those pieces of paper out, and I start reading through things that you said about how you want to be generous with your ability, with your your money, with your time, and I'm saying, Jesus, it can happen. These people get that fully alive is generous because we will not, if we have a hunkering down defensive mentality and start trying to hoard our little red balls and our Nerf balls, put up the for sale sign. 
That's true of any group of people. But you get a group of people like this called Northland that is saying, he's given so that we might give. It makes me so excited about the J. George did a great thing in putting this together. He just didn't make it for me to walk on. What's J stand for? Look at you guys. Journey. We're not happenstance. He's birthed something very intentional. And he's got us on this journey of saying, I want to do something with you. When I'm fully alive, I'm approaching every day with an understanding today matters. Today matters in his overall agenda. And it's an agenda that's just ginormous. Romans chapter 8, verse 19, for the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. Fallen creation is on tiptoe looking at you and me and tons of other people over history who have been summoned back in to significance, who've been summoned back in to being, being alive to the glory of God. It keeps going in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. And we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. What are we waiting on? What's creation waiting on? Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 14. In creation originally, the glory of the Lord covered the earth as the waters covered the sea. That was marred by our sin. We've all sinned and fallen short of the beauty of the glory of God. But he says that was the intention and it will not be denied. And one day, once again, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And what he is doing in an individual, when you come to Jesus, it's not just about you and me getting our, our mess straightened out. It is about that, but it's about us becoming a part of a great story, a great deliberate plot to the glory of God where we're approaching every day, living with a sense of awe, not being, not, not being crushed by brokenness, but being stewards of it, being creative men and women, deep men and women, engaging this culture with the life of Jesus, walking in fellowship, doing it together, not alone, being generous along the way, living passionately with heart, walking intimately with Him and doing it together as a journey. You talk about something significant, absolutely. I'm going to ask our, our worship team to come out here. Uh, if, if our worship team is still here, they, they might have left. But, uh, oh, there you guys are. I'm going, to, I'm going to ask you to just think through what this next season can look like for us called North. The Spanish coat of arms, it's been around a long time. At one time, the Spanish coat of arms had this Latin phrase on it, ne plus ultra, there's nothing beyond. Spain's on the ocean, looking west, there's nothing beyond. The king of Spain changed that coat of arms phrase to plus ultra, there is more beyond. You know when he did that? After a guy named Columbus, 
sailed away from Spain and realized it ain't over. There's more beyond. And the beauty of this incredibly persistent and powerful and irresistible story that God is writing is that we're caught up in it. And whatever fears you've got, whatever addictions we're struggling with, whatever obstacles are going, he says, I'm author and I'm also finisher. And the stuff you're dealing with, it will not deter what my ultimate plan is. Northland Church, had ebbs and flows. But he who began a good work in you, he will complete it. We're on this journey together to say, plus ultra. There's more beyond. And man, I'm looking forward to it. Let's stand, let's sing this reprise, and then I'll give you the good word.